0: When you came in, hopefully someone handed you what we call our discipleship guide. On one side of that are notes for today's message with some space for you to take notes and fill in some blanks as we go through uh, the passage we're going to look at today. And then on the other side are some questions that our life groups ask uh, during the week uh, in an attempt for them to work that into their lives. Now here's what we're doing right now, in case you did not know. We are, in January, getting ready to launch life groups, uh, a whole bunch of them, uh, because we think that the journey of faith is better when you do it with somebody else. In fact, we weren't meant to do it alone. And knowing some other people, a few other people that you can say, hey, I know those people, and those other people can know you, is a key part of your journey of faith. And so I want you to make room for uh, life groups in January as we're going to be launching those. Currently, uh, the people who are going to help launch those are in what we're calling pilot groups. Uh, And so they're experiencing what you're going to experience ahead of time. But you can use this guide throughout the week. And uh, so I want you to take that out. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture together and what it means for our life. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would. We're picking up a story uh, in the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the whole totality of the story. We're just looking at one scene right here. I'll read it aloud, and you can follow along on the screen. Joab, son of Zariah, if you're looking for a baby name, Knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom, who was the son of King David. So Joab sent to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. Tekoa was a a town. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. And then skips down to verse 14, the words she says to King David. She says this, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. I remember the, the first time that I realized uh, that people will hurt you. And trusting people is a challenge. I was uh, probably in the third or the fourth grade, and I just finished my lunch like I did. I had the uh, entire slice of pizza that day because I was old enough to eat the entire slice of pizza in elementary uh, cafeteria land. Uh, I just drunk my chocolate milk and put it down. I put my tray away. I ran out the door, up the stairs, around the kindergarten playground to the back side of the school to uh, the four-square that was painted on the blacktop at the back of the building. How many of you played Foursquare in elementary school? You were not as awesome at it as I was. But I was, and and so I went out there because I was, I'm not going to lie, pretty incredible at Foursquare. And so I'm out there and I'm I'm winning like I did in the third grade. Like I was just schooling everybody on Foursquare. And until my, I'll call him, uh, I'll give his name as Leroy, it's not his real name, uh, who was my arch nemesis all the way through elementary school, came out. And uh, we got into kind of a, an argument right there on the Foursquare. And he said that I cheated, and I knew that he had cheated. And he's giving me some hateful, uh, hateful looks. He's throwing shade my way. And so finally, a, one of the aides sees what's happening and comes over. And I watched Leroy change from this hateful calling me names into this sweet little angel. Oh, Miss Johnson. I don't know what happened. Scott did the better. And I'm like, "What is this guy doing right now?" I realized, in that moment, people will hurt you. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, there's, I think, almost a universal uh, human experience where we get into relationships with people. Things happen. Trust gets broken to start this uh, series, uh, we uh, we put out a poll and asked you you know what, of, of the five things we 're going to talk about in this series, uh, what 's the one that has you tripped up the most, and we 've got the the poll uh, here on the screen so you can see see kind of how people answered that. But the the number one thing people said is, you know, how do do I get my point across without being misunderstood? We're going to talk about that next week. How do you communicate so that you get closer to people, not further away? Uh, That's next week. But then the second most is how do I trust somebody after they've hurt me? What do I do? Now, I, I need to, before we jump into this, I need to let you know who I'm not talking to I am not talking today to the person who has been abused understand this trust is something that is earned it is not given it is something that is earned and if someone has abused you legitimately abused you I hope if you are a follower of Jesus that you're able to forgive them not only for uh, the, the relationship's sake but for your own sake for the freedom that comes from being able to forgive someone and not hold something in your own heart against them That's one thing. But it is an entirely different thing to trust someone because if someone has legitimately abused you, you are not obligated to trust that person again. Now, if that person were to prove to you that they were worth your trust and you decided to do that, you are a free human being and you can do that. But even then, you are not required, if someone has been abusive toward you, to trust that person. Uh, Sometimes in, in the church... Well-meaning people say really dumb things. Have you ever experienced this? You know, the church is not per- full of perfect people. And so people will say things like forgiveness and trust are the same thing, and they're not. Uh, psychological and emotional health and spiritual health are two sides of the same coin. They're not, they're not opposites. So I'm, I'm not talking to you today if you've been abused, and you're saying, well, I have to trust that person. I'm not, I'm not talking to you. I am talking to those of you who have been hurt, and you've been betrayed and you want to figure out if you can ever trust someone again anybody want to go down that path i want to invite you even if you're like nah how do i get out of this quick i want to invite you to to just hear what we're going to talk about today and see if you couldn't make a little bit of progress now every week uh in the series we're giving you a goal we're saying okay here's a hack uh, get better at a part of relationships that 's a struggle for many of us, and then we always give you a goal, and then at the end, we give you the, the hack and and The goal is really a story. The goal is the story of, uh, of Paul and Barnabas. If you know Paul, the apostle Paul wrote what much of what we have as the New Testament. this guy wrote. The stinking Bible. Okay, this is who we're talking about. And what Paul did is, Paul would travel around over the course of his life. Some scholars say he traveled ten to fifteen thousand miles by foot, uh, going around the Roman world, the ancient Roman world, planting little communities of Jesus. He was a tent maker by by trade, and he would take that trade different places, and then he would introduce people to Jesus. And part of his practice is he would go do that with someone else. And one of the people that he traveled with on a regular basis was a guy by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. So you've got the guy who wrote the stinking Bible and the son of encouragement. And they are traveling together. And at some point, uh, another a uh, guy who was traveling with them. His name was John Mark. Many scholars think that was the Mark that wrote uh, the gospel in the New Testament. And uh, in Acts chapter 13, says that Mark left them and went to Jerusalem. And you don't find out until Acts chapter 15 that what actually happened is that Mark, John Mark, deserted Paul and Barnabas when it got hard so you got the guy who wrote the stinking bible and barnabas the son of encouragement who come at an impasse in their relationship and they can't agree on what's supposed to happen next barnabas says we should give john mark another chance paul says no way we should this guy this guy kicked us to the curb we're kicking him to the curb we're not going to do this In fact, Acts chapter 15 15 records it this way. They had such a sharp disagreement, you see it there in yellow, that they parted company. Okay, okay, hear, hear what I'm trying to say to you. The guy who wrote the stinking Bible and the son of encouragement were at odds with each other. Now, this is the reality for all of us. So no matter who you are, and this is the first blank you can fill in on your sermon notes, uh, it goes like this, earning trust is slow, losing it is fast. Isn't that true? Earning trust is slow, but losing it is fast. So, But here's the goal. Uh, some scholars say it was 15 years later, some say it was 20 years later. Paul, uh, for his faith, the way he talked about Jesus, the unrest, the social unrest he created as a result of spreading the news about Jesus in the Roman world, uh, got him to Rome. He appealed to the Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire, and he's in a prison. He's languishing in a prison. He knows his life is going to be end. He's going to be beheaded for his faith, and he writes to Timothy, one of his, uh, one of his apprentices. He writes the letters of First and Second Timothy in the New Testament. If you want to read the words of someone at the end of their life who is getting ready to die, you can read 2 Timothy later today. With that context in mind, you'll go, wow, But I want you to hear what he says to Timothy 15 or 20 years later when he says, I I can't trust that guy anymore. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to my ministry. Paul understood that Jesus changes absolutely everything, including his ability to trust someone who would hurt him. And if you're willing, I want to take you down that path. Now, you got to understand this. Uh, Paul's story can sound like, oh, yeah, see, that's just how it always works in the Bible. Everything gets tied up with a neat little bow, and the service is neat and clean, and the Bible can sound like it's a bunch of fairy tales because everything's all, everyone's all happy at the end. And you don't know the things that I've been through and the mess that I've been through and what people have done to me and said to me and how they've hurt me. You don't get how messy that is. Well, that's why I love the Bible. Because the Bible is full of stories that are full of the ambiguity and dysfunction that you and I experience. And it's this story that we're going to look at today uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 13 uh, all the way to chapter 18. And I'm calling it lessons from a failure. And I'll go through and and show you the notes that you can fill in here in a second. But as we begin this, I need you to understand something. I need you to look at you for a second. Because in the end, this is about you. At some point, you and I have to recognize that we are the common denominator in all of our relationships. Did you know that in every relationship you're in, you're in that relationship? (laughs) You're the common denominator. Do you you remember? Third grade, fractions, and you would have to say, okay, you got one-fourth and three-fourths, And you would make sure they had the common denominator, four at the bottom, and you could add the top. Then one plus three equals four, right? I I know this because I just helped my third grade daughter with math, or I would have forgotten it. Do you remember how if you, you didn't have the common denominator, you had to find the common denominator? And if you didn't find the common denominator, you would always get the wrong answer, and it didn't matter what the other numbers did if you didn't make sense of the common denominator. And then that is really the challenge for all of us in our relationships because we are the common denominator. And sometimes we're like, well, that number's wrong, and that person's wrong, and that they said was not right, but, and we ignore the fact that we are the common denominator, and you can't solve the equation unless you know what the common denominator is. So we're going to look at this story from the perspective of David as he's the common denominator, the King David, uh, and uh, understand what he has to teach us. So here's, here's his story. Uh, David was maybe the greatest king in all of Israel. Uh, At his height, he was incredibly wealthy. He was well-respected throughout the ancient world. Um, He was uh, a phenomenal leader. He was a phenomenal warrior. He was an amazing person. He had, however, uh, 10 wives. I don't know how you make that work. Um, I'm sure he would have had a reality show where he alive today. The king and all his wives. I I don't know. Hashtag king wives. I, I don't know what it would be. But he he had 10 wives. Now, you need to understand when you hear that, that the scriptures are not saying that polygamy is fine. All that's happening, especially in the Old Testament, is just showing you what the culture was like. Everybody in that day had multiple wives, and that was just the culture. Wise scholars point out about the Old Testament that you have to understand when you see a polygamous situation, the subtext of all of that is that polygamy is terrible for human relationships. But it's just commenting on it. It's just saying it. And especially in his day, a king would marry uh, the daughter of another king to make a political alliance, and that's what David had done with many of his wives. And so um, he had a wife named Ahinoam, and she had a son named Amnon. Turn to your neighbor and say, Amnon. Uh, He also married another, another wife, Maka, and she had two children, Absalom and Tamar. Turn to your neighbor and say, Absalom and Tamar. So Amnon was several years older and was the half-brother of Absalom and Tamar. You need to understand that. The text says that Tamar was exquisitely beautiful. All the men in the land were like, Tamar, some of Tamar, wow. Uh, It says that Amnon saw his younger half-sister Tamar and desired her. So he set up an elaborate ruse to have his way with her. He got her into his room under the guise of being sick, and he forced himself on her. She begged him, please don't do this thing to me. I'll be disgraced forever. it will disgrace you. Please don't. He, he, he had his way with her anyway, and the text says, he hated her with a hatred greater than the love with which he loved her. Isn't that how life goes often? Oh, I thought I wanted that. Oh, I didn't want that at all. He, Tamar's brother, uh, Absalom, was furious. He was angry. Uh, he met his sister, Tamar, and he said, have you been with your brother, uh, Amnon? And she said, yes. Now, you've got to understand uh, what, what was happening at the time. David, the text says, he's the king. The king can do whatever he wants. He can make any action happen. He can kill anybody he wants. He can take anything he wants. And the text says that David heard about all that transpired between Amnon and And Tamar, and this is all it says happened inside the heart and mind of David, who could have done something about this. And David was furious. So he does nothing. You can see the beginnings of dysfunction right there. Uh, Fast forward about two years, Absalom makes a plot against the life of Amnon. He calls a big feast, he bides his time, he calls a feast, and he calls all of the, the kings, different children from the different wives, and has a big celebration. And he says to his servants, When we're here, and when, when Amnon's heart is merry, what I want you to do is I want you to go kill him. Now be strong and courageous and do what I've commanded, and they do. The text says that uh, when the king heard about Amnon, notice the dysfunction happening, he wept. Now, this is the, first, the first blank for you is this, is that it's normal to feel hurt. It's, it's normal to feel hurt. It's not spiritual to not hurt. It doesn't make you stronger if you somehow don't cry. It doesn't make you brave if you don't admit hurt. When things happen that hurt, it hurts. My kids are now old enough that when we wrestle, they hurt me. It used to be I could take one hand and hold one down and one hand. Now i got to protect myself, right? And I have to tell them, hey, when you do that, it actually hurts me. If I don't tell them that, they can't change their behavior. And whatever else was going on, however dysfunctional David was responding to the situation, and he certainly was, he was hurt. So even if you are the common denominator and you're completely unaware of how you contribute to the problem, you're still hurt. And it's normal to feel hurt, and I don't want you to minimize your pain. Well, what happens is then Absalom flees. He goes, uh, his mother married David as a political alliance, and so he goes uh, to the court of his grandfather, and um, he lives there for three years, for three years. So um, his sister um, is raped by her half-brother. His father does nothing about it for two years, won't speak to him. And then another three years, so we're five years deep into this story, And there's no communication, there's no letter, there's no text messages with funny gifs, there's nothing. There's no private messages on Facebook, nothing happens. David here is a, uh, what I will call a shutter downer versus a blower upper. Now you know that in any relationship there are two types of responses to hurt. Some people are shutter downers, they shut down. And some people are blower uppers. You are one or the other. So let's have a moment of honesty in the room, all right? If you are a shutter downer, just raise your hand. It's okay. It's okay. We're not going to point you out. If you are a blower upper, raise your hand. Okay. We're not going to, we're not going to, there are plus sides and downsides to both of those. But here's what David does. David shuts down. Now, if you know the story of David, you know this is a season of life for him where he's changed his response. Because you could go back to earlier parts in his life and argue that David was a blower-upper. For whatever reason, though, he's become a shutter-downer. Now, if David were going on to Dr. Phil, this would be the moment that Dr. Phil would look at David and he would say, David, how's that working for you? (laughs) Because this is the truth. Shutting down shuts things down. Shutting down shuts things down it doesn't make things better it only rubs the pain in now here's what's interesting the text doesn't tell us why he shuts down why we don't know why do you shut down you probably don't know either sometimes people shut down as a way to punish other people they're like oh yeah well i will show him exactly what it is and go sometimes people shut down out of fear they just think well if I just am quiet and I go to my corner maybe no one will bother me however it works when you shut down there is no progress and there's no reconciliation and the wound festers and the hurt marinates and the pain simmers let me give it to you in a mental image pain simmers in the crock pot of silence Do you know how if you set something, you put something in the crockpot, and and you you turn it on and you walk away? Even when you walk away, it's still simmering. And a lot of us shut down, and we walk away, and we think that's how we're going to take care of it, but it's still simmering. Shutting down shuts things down. Now David's uh, general Joab, who was his right hand man, understands. Hey, he's five years deep into this. David and his son, and this is not going to go well for the kingdom because absalom is the next one in line uh for the kingship and so he's he it's this scene that we read a little bit ago he sends this wise woman from the a, a city called tokoa and and says you wish you go maybe we can get david talking about this now you know right that when you're in the middle of your mess that sometimes people show up and they're trying to help you and sometimes you can't see the help they're trying to offer to you This is what's happening in the life of David, and he gets David talking about it, and this is a glimmer of hope in any story when trust, mistrust has happened, is when you can start to talking about it, because talking is the turn. Talking is when you make the shift. Talking is the turn. Throw that up on the screen for me. Talking is the turn. Uh, It's when you, you take it off simmer. And you say let's let's have a conversation about this and see if we can't move in a different direction. And so David agrees to have let Absalom come home and and this is this is this is what happens, right? When something's not working and someone makes a little gesture. They like your post on Facebook. You hear from someone else that she said that she might want to have a conversation with you. <laughs> And you go, oh, wait, this little glimmer of hope rises up inside of us. This little piece of relief. Oh, maybe this, maybe this tension could go away. Maybe we could trust each other again. But I want you to notice what David does because it's often what we, do, what we do. He stops at just a gesture. And he operates under the illusion that we believe so often, you know, you're hurting. And you go to someone for counsel and they say to you, you know, time heals all wounds. No, the reality is that time doesn't heal wounds you won't talk about. That's the reality. That's the next blank. Time doesn't heal the wounds that you won't talk about. And so he lets Absalom come home, but he lives in Jerusalem for two years without seeing the king's face. So he's home, but he's not. He's invited back, but he's not. And at the end of two years, so how deep are we into this? We're seven years into this. This, is, this dysfunction has simmered in, in the not speaking and the not talking. We're seven years into this, and, and Absalom is by this point frustrated. He's thinking, okay, my father ignored the rape of my sister. Um, he uh, has ignored me after I kill my brother, and I, I would like to get this resolved. And so he goes to Joab, and he tries to say, Joab, you need to make this happen so I can actually go talk to my father. And Joab won't listen to him, and he says, okay, listen to his servants. Go to Joab, burn down his field. I need Joab's attention. He burns down Joab's field, and he gets Joab's attention, and Joab says, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll arrange it. So he arranges a meeting between Absalom and David. And David goes into the court. Now the, the writers of the biblical story, they don't waste any words and they're, they're all full of meaning. And what, what they say about that encounter says everything about what's happening in the relationship, at least in the heart of David. And this is what it says in the heart of David. Uh, Absalom walks in to see his father he hasn't seen for seven years. He bows down. This is what the text says. And the king Kissed Absalom. Now I hope you can see what's happening. It doesn't say, and he embraced his son. Do you see the difference? David's putting up distance. He's saying, "Well, you know what? I mean, I'm going to let you in, but I'm not going to let you close. I I mean, maybe we could make this better, but I'm going to put my I'm going to put my arms up, and I'm going to keep you at a distance." What if right here David had just embraced his son? If you know the end of this story, it ends so tragically. Now, for whatever reason, uh, this is where the trust completely breaks. At, at, at seven years in, Absalom realizes his father is going to do absolutely nothing and won't have the real conversation that needs to be had. And, and the text says that Absalom then went and stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. And he, he plots a coup to overthrow his father. When his father David realizes what's happening, he flees the city and he leaves knowing that his son is after him. Now this is where we have to stop, we have to pause, and we have to acknowledge something for a moment. This is where many of us are in our relationship with another person when we want to trust. It's so far broken, we don't know if it can ever be fixed. We have no idea how to change it. And this is the moment when we heap onto ourselves all of the shame about how we can't make sense of it. Now maybe we are someone at this point, you're self-aware and you get that, okay, I contributed to it. Too. Or maybe you're the person you'd think, that's ah, it's all them, had nothing to do with me. Wherever you are, you can feel so overwhelmed and think, especially if you're a Christian, God must not, God must not like me. I must be a terrible Christian. I, I must be awful. But I need you to hear this. This is the next blink. God is never overwhelmed by how broken you are. God is never overwhelmed by how broken you are. I want you to notice something. Uh, David leaves Jerusalem, the capital city where he lives, and he goes up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, the text says. Now maybe you know a little bit about the Bible, and you know later in the New Testament when Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem and he's about ready to lose his life on the cross. Do you know where he goes out? He goes outside the city. And do you know where he goes? To the Mount of Olives you know what he does in the Mount of Olives? It's where he cries and weeps. David is going and he's weeping for what has happened that he can't undo. And what Jesus is there and he's going to weep for what's about to happen because of what he will do on our behalf. You need to understand this. It's Jesus that opens the door to God's family. You are not in because of anything you do. You are in because of what Jesus has done for you. And so you are, you've got to understand that you are in even when you feel like you're out because of Jesus. This is We're in because of the grace and the kindness of God. And so you can do your work of trying to figure out this thing about trust under the cover of God's love for you. You need to hear that. God's never overwhelmed by how broken you are. David leaves the Mount of Olives. He's traveling along. He's got all of his servants with him his generals, he's got military people with him, and this this man named Shammai comes up and begins to curse David. I think David at this point recognizes that he's having a moment of self-awareness and he's recognizing, you know what, I think I had something to do with this and I've just ignored this for seven years and it's not going away and it's not getting any better. And some of his military men say, "Who is this dog that's cursing you? Let us go over and take off his head." And he says, "No, no. I, I, I think I deserve this for what I've done. Just let him, let him be." And, and this is this is the next this is the next turn in the story. Is don't miss your chance for change. Don't don't miss your chance to change. I mean, David saw something and he could have made a change. But don't don't miss your chance to change. Well, they're they're fleeing. Absalom is in pursuit. Now Absalom, the text says, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, had no blemish. Uh, Said that he was uh, one of the most beautiful men in all of Israel, and he had a very thick head of hair that once a year he would have a royal ceremony, and he would cut the royal hair. And um, he was riding his horse in pursuit of David through a thicket of trees, and his hair got caught. In the tree. Now, I don't have Absalom's problem, and if he had my head of hair, he would not have had this happen to him in his life, so it's his fault for having a thick head of hair. But he has a thick head of hair, he gets caught in the tree, and Joab, David's general, comes along at this opportune moment, and the text says he took three sticks and stuck them through the heart of Absalom. Uh, Two servants see this and they run to tell David. Um, David sees them coming and he says they, they have news of the boy Absalom, let them come. And finally, one of them says, you know, uh, your son, yes it is your son, your son has been killed. May it be this way with all of the enemies of the king. And Absalom, in, in, or David, in one of the, the most poignant cries in all of the Bible, weeps for his son. Um, this is what he says. I have it in the Hebrew. We'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, he says this. He says, "Beni Avshalom, Beni Avshalom, Beni Avshalom." You know what that means? My son Absalom, my son Absalom, my son Absalom. And this is why I, I wish we would learn to give the eulogy now and not then. You know, the eulogy is a Greek word. It means good words. We've confined it to what we say at a funeral, but it's good words. What if you said the good things now and this was too late for David. My son, my son. Now it would be the irony of all ironies for you to know the meaning of the name of Absalom. Absalom means my father is full of peace. Can you see the irony that David feels in this moment? Oh, my son, my son. It's too late. So say it now. I'll date myself with this a little bit, but there's a song uh, in the living years. In the living years, say it now, say it loud. Google it and listen to it this afternoon. Because you have right now, you don't have then. Well, well, what's the hack? The hack is this you and I have to develop a detour mindset. Now, don't worry, we didn't steal this off the road somewhere. (laughs) We borrowed this from the city department. You have to develop a detour mindset. A detour mindset uh, means several things. It means, one, you're going to have to follow the signs. And two, it means it's going to take you a little bit to get there. You're going to have to reroute from your original destination around in a different direction and I, I, I went the other day I drove down central absent-mindedly I uh, was heading home and I forgot that the bridge was out Now, I, I a few weeks ago I did the same thing and the bridge wasn't out yet and you kind of make your way through and I drove across but I, I got to the I got to the where they were the bridge was out and I passed all the signs that said detour and I ignored it and and what if I had gotten to that that edge of the bridge and I said You know what? I see other people posting on Facebook about how they take other roads to other places, but it's just not possible because I'm right here right now and this bridge is out and I'm never going to go across a bridge ever again. Isn't that exactly what we do with relationships? Somebody hurt me and I'm never going to trust them again. I see other people posting things on Facebook about how they love and trust, but I know it's not ever going to happen. You have to develop a detour mindset you have to follow the signs and when you go on a detour you go places you've never been before and you see things you've never seen before and you get to your destination by an alternate route now you say well okay well how how, how am i going to do that well if you're following jesus you need to understand jesus never asks you to do something that he hasn't already done and who has more reason to mistrust people than god right And maybe you've never thought about it this way, but Jesus on the cross, stretching himself out for the sins of mankind, is God's detour around the mistrust of people for God and each other. It's like, I got an alternate route. You think this is it? The bridge is washed out? Watch. I'm going to make the distance up. And then he rises from the dead and says, there's hope for you. There's new life for you. There's a different destination on the other side that you didn't even have planned. But you got to you got to develop a detour mindset, and you got to go where you've never been before, and you got to follow the signs. I know this is a, a super heavy uh, subject, and, and so Tim's gonna come and he's gonna play, and uh, some folks from our prayer team are gonna be down front, and and uh, because to trust again, you, you have to take the detour. And as uh, as we've been talking uh, this morning, maybe there is a situation or a person that comes to mind and you take your piece of paper and you would write down a name or a situation. And you say, okay, God, this is a person, situation that I need to take the detour and I'm gonna need some help. It's gonna take a minute, but I'm not giving up. I'm gonna pray for you and um, then I'm gonna invite you to... to to pause for a few moments. And if you'd like to pray with someone while everyone's writing, you're welcome to come up. Uh, Prayer team, if you guys would come down front right now and be up here. Um, Let's pray. Thanks, Jesus, that uh, you didn't give up on us when the bridge was out, when we were full of mistrust, when we did you wrong. You didn't give up. You didn't say, well, forget it you came and you put yourself on a cross to bridge the gap between us and you so thank you thank you that you know about mistrust thank you that you know about hurt and that you didn't give up and thank you Jesus for the resurrection it gives us hope that something better can happen and many of us frankly can't imagine how the situations in our life could be any different so I pray you'd put resurrection hope in us this morning that we'd, we'd see a glimpse, a vision of the kind of relationships we can have. And so as we pause right now and we listen to the still, small voice of your spirit whispering inside of our hearts, We want to adopt a detour mindset. We want to recognize that we can go another way. And that you can reroute us to our final destination. So speak to us right now. Pray this in your name. Take a moment, would you?